pained me to realize this because that means that while they were, you know, negotiating in good faith, supposedly with the West Moberly and Soto First Nations, they were also rapidly approving cup locks in the critical habitat of Southern Mount Caribou. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Before we start talking about this week's episode, I want to thank all of you for the wonderful support and response to the announcement I made last week about the new Young Defenders initiative. I'm working hard on the finishing touches to the back end of the website at youngdefenders.ca, and I'm developing a whole bunch of original content. The podcast itself will take a few weeks yet as the final pieces come together, but the site, articles, community, and social media will all be fully active next week. That's the first week of June. Please head over to youngdefenders.ca to sign up for alerts about the new site and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Young Defenders and clicking on the Shield logo. For all the patrons of Defender Radio and Young Defenders, I also want to let you know that we'll be launching a Discord server soon, an online chat room you can access from your desktop or mobile device where you can trade arts and crafts ideas, uh, DIY solutions to wildlife coexistence in your community. You can discuss school projects or news items and generally just have some fun with like-minded people. Get details on the Patreon at patreon.com slash Defender Radio or follow the links on this week's show notes. Now, let's talk about this week's interview. Mountain caribou are endangered in British Columbia. It's a big deal. The federal government has threatened to intervene if plans aren't put in place to protect them. So there's a few regions at play, and one of the plans for one of the regions, worked on heavily by First Nations leaders, is receiving praise. But the plan for at least one other region has huge holes in it and fails to address some key issues. Now, while protecting caribou habitat may seem like a straightforward task, both the previous B.C. provincial government run in a majority by the Liberals and the current government run by an NDP-Green partnership is showing that it's anything but straightforward. From literally and I mean literally, selling the rights to cut down trees in the habitats of the endangered caribou while negotiating for the endangered caribou, to killing wolves despite widespread scientific and ethical opposition, to a disturbing rise in racism and economic disinformation, it's been a confusing journey. As the consultation period winds down, and links to actions on that are included in this week's show notes because you only have until May 31st to get your comments in, I did want to take some time to break out the points, challenge the myths, and hear opposing opinions to what industry and politicians have spouted. That's why I connected with Charlotte Daw, Conservation and Campaign Manager for Wilderness Committee, who patiently listened to my tangents and walked me through the last year of work on this campaign and how you can be part of the solution. Let's start with what the issue is in extraordinarily broad strokes. Okay. We've got caribou, we've got wolves, we've got forestry and gas, we've got politicians, we've got the public, we've got uh, lobby groups, uh, and everyone is at the beginning of the story sort of drawing their own lines in the sand. Uh, so let's start with the the general broad stroke overview. What are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about the issue 
of Southern Mountain Caribou and their decline and their uh, how they're headed for extinction, why they're headed for extinction, like what's what's caused them to um, to have such drastic declines in not a lot of time, and what needs to be done, and the resistance to getting that done. I feel like are the some of the main points. Yeah, and I think resistance might be even a, a bit of a mild word in some yeah. regards uh, to those yeah. of us who have been following that. But mm-hmm. uh, let's, so you did send me a very lovely chronology via news articles that I could go over and refresh myself on all of this. Um, so let's start. Uh, the first one on the list is uh, from uh, earlier this year, beginning of April, at the beginning of engagement sessions. So I'm going to also recommend anyone who's interested in the the, the deep dive science on this. I interviewed Jill, uh, Dr. Gilbert Pru uh, last year, I think. I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes. But we went into the science of the penning plan, of the wolf killing plan, mm-hmm. uh, and really. And Gilbert is uh, he's a hardcore biologist, sciencey guy, um, and he just kind of went off for 40 minutes on it, mm. which was great. Uh, But for those who want that deep dive into the very specific beginning of the issue, that's a good place to start. But we're going to start with the the conflict, so to speak. So the engagement sessions for everyone to get together, all the parties, um, and I think this included the federal government at this point. um, Everyone got together to, to more or less talk about this and pitch ideas, answer questions, look at the agreements that were in place uh, or the draft agreements they wanted to put in place. How did that go? It started, so it started with engage engagement sessions. And this is sort of before the public uh, was briefed on the topic. Although the BC government has, um, they've released consultations in the past before, like none of this is new. None of the, strategies um that were mentioned in the in these new agreements were um like it's not like they were pulled out of thin air and never talked about in the area there were there was actually a conservation agreement consultation that happened in i believe it was 2017 and 2018 um about southern mountain caribou and how to save them and there was a time for people to write in and everything so this has been ongoing for a long time but now all of a sudden because these agreements are directly affecting some of these or like in like involve the forests where some of these towns are, um, the this was the first time a lot of the public heard about this. So as they started, from from what it seemed like to me, it was just um, you know gathering information, which quickly, quickly, quickly turned into a storm of misinformation, fear mongering, panic, like you name it. Um, the communities uh, that that are near the central group of Southern Mountain Caribou uh, were were up in arms completely over these um, agreements. And there were, how, how do we differentiate between them? Is it just geographic based? Yes. So basically Southern Mountain Caribou, you have three different groups of Southern Mountain Caribou. You have the Northern group, the central group, and the Southern group. Uh, and this partnership agreement, which is what we're talking about today, has to do with the central group of Southern Mountain Caribou. And it's in the traditional, so the central group of Caribou um, reside in the traditional land of the West Moberly and Soto First Nations. 
and a lot of other communities live up there as well. So this plan is just focusing on uh, on that group of caribou. All right. And um, I remember talking with you and a couple of other folks about this when it came out. Uh, and the reason I'm th- also I'm going to put in the reason I'm also very, very glad for this this overview that you sent me in this conversation we're having is this took place almost at the same time as the uh, the big provincial move in Alberta to protect a swatch of land, as I recall, which was very, very contentious in the foothills somewhere. Right. Um, so there, there was there was literally meetings happening at the same time in BC in Alberta, mm-hmm. having to do with the environment and wildlife. Um, yeah. And for someone from Ontario, got conflated easily. Um, <laughs> so when we look at these plants, uh, you know, we're looking. Uh, so this is uh, there was 219 caribou in six herds in the region, um, and it just seems like we got to move fast. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's the reaction I get from it, that Mm -hmm. this is not good. Um, Let's go in quick and let's go in hard. And as I mentioned before, there's already science on this. Yeah. Uh, We, we know exactly what is happening, um, Mm -hmm. which is uh, I'll let you maybe get into that a bit. (laughs) Yeah. That would make sense for an interview format, wouldn't it? Okay. Maybe. (laughs) Sure. You probably know it as well as I do. Um, so essentially caribou, um, what, what's happening with caribou, the, the main ultimate cause is habitat destruction. Habitat destruction leads to a couple of things. First is it directly removes their food, uh, which is lichen. So some groups of Southern mountain caribou, um, rely on lichen that grows from old growth trees, which can take up to 150 years for the lichen or for the tree to grow to an age that can support this particular type of lichen. So when you directly remove that old growth tree, you remove the food source that can't come back in that area for another 150 plus years. That's one of the issues that doesn't really get talked about enough. Um, And also you remove the shelter like for the um, for the caribou. So it's easier access um, can hunt them more easily. And then that leads to the second issue, which is when you have habitat destruction, not only are you directly removing that forest right there, but you're building a bunch of roads in to remove that forest. And those roads we like to call the sciencey term for it is a linear feature. Basically any 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 pathway that cuts through a forest leading into what would have been not accessible backcountry. So basically if you think of like if you think of a mountain and think about the snowpack on top, then think about a wolf, which is caribou right now. It's um, one of like the main predators to caribou. A wolf isn't going to access that backcountry, that high elevation, because the snowpack is just too high. But if you have linear features, which are like roads or snowmobile trails, which pack down the snow and create this... Um, you know, highway into backcountry, all of a sudden wolves are getting into these areas they can't and they're easily picking off caribou, which is what's happened. That's why caribou are declining. So is it, do the wolves have a part to play? Yes, of course. Is the solution to kill all the wolves and then be done with it? No, because they still need food um, in the forest. They still need that habitat for food um, and they still need shelter. So the way to fix it is habitat protection, number one, and then habitat restoration, which means blocking the linear features, roads and whatnot, that wolves are accessing. Um, 
So does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It does. And I think right. we've had this exact conversation both for a past episode when we talked about some of these plans and just chatting about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so just so the partnership agreement, uh, which is which was created by West Morbilly and Soto First Nations in collaboration with the federal and provincial government, the partnership agreement really addressed all of the threats and took a number of measures to recover caribou. Usually when you see a plan or a recovery um, effort into caribou, it's just killing wolves. Like it's just ticking one box. Um, and so this plan is really amazing because it protects quite a bit of critical habitat, which is the first we've seen. It puts effort into restoration. It has a maternity pen. So you're seeing a number of different recovery measures. And that's what makes this plan actually have some potential. And that's why we're actually excited about this. Yeah, it's 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 one of the first times that the other stuff is being acknowledged by governments. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back and again, Alberta and BC have both been struggling with this issue for, for mm -hmm. years. And that's yeah. why the federal government got involved, uh, because they hadn't done anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it's very positive. And a lot of folks are very excited about that one plan, but it has meant that looking at the other ones, there's not a lot there. And, yeah. you know, again, going through the articles and the comments, a lot of it's things like I, it doesn't answer questions. It doesn't show us the way forward. Mm. And I think something that's very, very telling as well, I'm going over an article from CBC by uh, Betsy Trumpener and Andrew Kerjada, I believe, uh, 500 dead wolves versus 500 lost jobs. <laughs> so this is a great one for a lot yeah. of reasons, because it's, there's elements of this article I love. They did talk to all the different sides, mm -hmm. which is important in journalism. Mm -hmm. One of the, and it, it put, it found this, this one town is the perfect microcosm for this conversation too. Um, but one of the things, uh, third paragraph in first sentence, the wolf calls are effective. Uh, and I, I ask who said that, right? Uh, that's just me being the former journalist, getting a little, you know, bratty about the fact that you have just made a scientific declaration mm -hmm. without any evidence, without any source, mm -hmm. uh, and it's wrong. So, mm -hmm. and it's also a sweeping generalization. Like the wolf calls are effective, effective in the short term effective in the long term, yeah. effective at reducing the number of wolves, effective at fewer caribou being killed. Like it's not, it is, yeah, it's a sweeping generalization because the thing about the wolf call is if you, if you rely on killing predators, so in this case, wolves, you can't just only kill wolves. You'd have to kill the bears and the cougars, which in some cases and in some areas eat more caribou than wolves. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a predator call, you'll need to kill all the predators. And then a predator call, you can't just do one year and then see the caribou rebound. You have to do it. Basically, I think, I think it's 90 years wow. before you have a like population level impact in, and where the caribou can recover enough to be self-sustaining. And so the whole thing about recovery is to achieve self-sustaining populations. So managing our, our wilderness and shooting things that we feel are pests is not creating, that's not like, that's not nature supporting itself. Um, I mean, you know, there was a study that came out that said, yeah, wolf culls and maternity petting are effective in recovering caribou. Well, yeah. I mean, if you put a fence around something and then remove all of its predators, sure, you're probably going to have that 
you're probably going to increase the chance of that species survive but that's sounds a lot like a zoo but that does in, not in yeah. that one too they're not even just removing predators they're removing all competition yeah for the caribou so anything that would yeah. use their habitat anything that would also eat that lichen they like hmm. everything yeah. gets killed yeah. Uh, yeah and you're absolutely it's just it's not sustainable it's not realistic no uh, especially when we know what the real problem is yes uh, which brings us back to this one and this this I don't know the answer to this. So mm. for for those who are not reading along with me right now, because you know that's not how reality works. Um, I read something you don't automatically know what I'm reading. I feel like I'm going off on a tangent. Anyway, <laughs> um, the situation is there is a mill. Oh, sorry, there's two mills. I suppose in uh, this town of a of not a whole lot of people. Um, I'm looking for the name of the town. Uh, Chetwind. Chetwind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, northeast of Prince George. And they're saying, if you shut down this mill, which yeah. could be a reality, because uh, if you have to protect the the habitat, then the mills aren't going to be working. Uh, it's going to destroy the town. And that's a reasonable fear. If 500 people are going to lose their jobs in a small industry town, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that, that economy cannot support that kind of a loss. Right. So, how do we balance that? I think that's a fair question to ask. And it mm-hmm. feels like I've not I've not heard from anyone in government about how they're going to mitigate that. Right. So here here's a little bit of context. The partnership agreement would protect 300,000 cubic meters. So that would be off limits in the harvest area. So there's like there's three different areas that you can harvest from within the central group, within where the plan is impacting. And so, yeah, so 300,000 cubic meters throughout those three areas would be off limits. Compare that with the total harvest area, which is 7.9 million cubic meters. That's a lot of cubic meters. Yeah. So that's literally 3.7% of the total volume of cubic meters that would be off limits. So if an industry can collapse from protecting 3.7% or reducing their harvest by 3.7%, um, that means there's other, there's something else going on if they have to automatically shut down a mill. And we haven't, this 500 jobs, this came from a guy named Roger Roy, who uh, works in the Chetwin Mill. He's the general manager. We don't know where he got. So he is claiming that he got this number from government, from provincial government. Yeah. No one in the provincial government has, has said anything like this. From when I've talked to them, I said, hey, you guys, someone is saying that you're claiming 500 jobs will be lost. No one has said that. So this is what I'm talking about, the the fear mongering and, and whatnot. And will, like, is this mill likely to close? Maybe. I mean, all of these mills in the small towns are closing up. Like we've just seen Canfor close down a mill or tempor- temporarily um, is shutting down mills. Uh, West Fraser is shutting down another mill um, in some other area of the province. It has nothing to do with caribou. A lot of these mills are, are shutting down because these forestry companies are losing money from having mills in these small communities, um, and they're not processing logs locally to where they're harvested. So it's, it's an industry issue, because industry is always going to protect their bottom line. The less number of people you have working and the, and the increased automation means more money. Mm-hmm. If, you can, if you can ship away your logs and process them in in other places that's going to be cheaper rather than locally you're going to do that because you're going to save more money 
if you're you're not going to value add, you're not going to create a diverse number of products through the wood that you harvest because you make more money in pulp and paper. So they're going to do that. These industries don't work for communities. They're not set up that way. And so I think this this conversation about caribou is is a bigger one. It's about how do we create an industry that works within our environment and works for our con- communities? Because the way we have it right now is we're liquidating our forests. These companies are liquidating the backyards of these small communities. And then they're making a bunch of money and then they're leaving. Um, last year, forest companies in, Ontar- in Ontario, for instance, uh, made record number of profits yet they employed fewer number of people and net salaries decreased. So the industry just, it's not working for communities. And to to blame it all on caribou is just, I think they're scapegoating. If they do shut down that mill, uh, yeah, caribou, protecting caribou habitat might have something to do with it, but I think it was inevitable. So they they had pretty much created a situation where if it fails, um, it's made to look as though it's a result of something else other than a large corporation saying, Hey, we can save money for our shareholders if we do this. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these companies have gone in and like, um, they keep, they exponentially are increasing the number of logs that they harvest in a forest that doesn't exponentially regenerate. Um, and then also take into account the pine beetle that's happened here in BC. Um, that's reduced log supply like crazy. And they knew this was happening yet. They continued to log. Um, they've, they're kind of running out of log supply and that's their fault. They didn't like, and it's the government's fault for allowing this to happen. Um, so to blame it solely on caribou, I mean, it's perfect timing. It's perfect timing for them to be able to walk away and say, oh, this was caribou. Um, but I, I'm not convinced that it is that. In fact, there is a report from West from West Fraser itself that said it's um, that says that it's inconclusive if the partnership agreement will impact um, like harvest rate. Or yeah, like I can send you the details, but it's crazy. I just got this forwarded to me and I was astounded to see this because it directly contradicts what this Roger Roy guy is running around saying. Well, what's problematic too is you then get MLAs running around repeating it. Uh, Exactly. I'm looking at this next article from um, Glacier Media, um, Mm -hmm. which is a cute name for a large corporate media conglomerate. Um, Peace River South MLA Mike Bernier. Um, said that, and this is a quote, one of the challenges where we are, oh, jeez, come on, guys. So the newspaper forgot to put an apostrophe (laughs) in the word we're, and I just read it as were. So that's on them. Uh, But hey, cut back all the journalists and anyway, different conversation to have. Exactly. But uh, one of the challenges we're faced with right now is that our government, the NDP government, I feel like that did not need to get put in, is coming yeah. in and imposing on rural British Columbia, a chance mm. that's going to shut down. Da- okay, the rest of the sentence doesn't even make sense. It's but tough to read. It is. <laughs> it, it, it is poorly structured, and the journalists did, did not take the simple steps of repairing it. No. But anyway. I love, so they're saying that it's going to shut down the entire backcountry. Yes. And it's going to devastate, commu- mm-hmm. devastate mm-hmm. communities. Yeah. And it feels like, gee, maybe this person's, you know, using this as a political opportunity. Yes. 
but it is something that comes up. And I know you experienced this out West. I experienced it here in Ontario. The fact that I live in Hamilton to a great number of people means I should not have any voice when it comes to anything happening mm. in rural regions outside yeah. of Hamilton. Yeah. Which I appreciate the emotional connection there. I get mm -hmm. saying, this is my home, not yours. Why are you telling me what to do? I, mm -hmm. I get that. But beyond that, I, I just, I don't know how people think that's how the world works. Right. Like that's, that's just not how it, that's, that's not how it goes. Everything affects everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that's, it's, so I've, I've thought about this a lot too. And I said, well, how, how am I able to have a say without people discrediting me because I live in Vancouver? And then I was this, uh, this, this trophy hunter guy called me a while ago about <laughs> yeah. um, about the wolf call yes. and he lived in Vancouver and he was he was expressing that you know we, we should still have a wolf call whatever and I thought okay so it seems like users who of the backcountry are allowed to have a say like if I went if I hunted in Chetwind a lot of the time would I like it seems like I would be able mm -hmm. to have more of a say if I did that it seems like only if you're directly using it, do you get to have a say that, and that's sort of like where that a lot of the hunters will come in and say, well, you don't hunt animals. You're not in this area. So you, you can't talk about it. Do you want us, do, we, do you want everyone in the city to go up there and hunt? <laughs> like, no, that's, that's not good. And I think also one of the best things you, one of the best things you, we as humans can do for nature is to leave it alone sometimes. Yeah. And so by us, city folks being here and i mean as smaller towns like as there's more um urban sprawl and whatnot that has a huge impact on the environment and so having a lot of us centered in a city i think reduces our impact if we were to all like move out to small towns and like increase the urban sprawl oh yeah um and so i don't know i'm just i, I just i hate that argument and i also think it 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 says that wildlife is yours to claim like if it's in your area then that's your wildlife and it's and it's not like wildlife belongs to no one but i think everyone in this province has a duty to um look out for them and protect them mm -hmm. and to do what we can um well yeah. i mean the the argument itself has so many logical fallacies in it but also one of the big things and this is something that and i'm trying to figure out there is one study from 2012 about outdoor recreational use in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure if you've seen this one. I can send it to you and I can link to it in the show notes for this episode. All of the provinces had to submit their recreation data. So who's spending what on what? Mm. Uh, and where are people going? And it's about people being out of doors. The, so I, I was specifically looking at trapping because that's our thing. And that mm. figure worked out to something like 0.002% of outdoor users are trappers. Okay. But trapping legislation far exceeds reg regulations related to almost any other outdoor activity. But the, my, my point of that is, uh, the anecdote aside, that the number of people going out and enjoying the outdoors mm -hmm. who aren't consumptive users, and by consumptive users, I mean fishers, hunters, trappers, yeah, by far outweighs. Oh, yeah. By far those that are. It's just yeah. maybe not as visible. Totally. And yeah, exactly. It's not as visible. And um, I think, I mean, there's not the, the powerful lobby money group behind 
behind people who like hikers <laughs> yeah you know like i think the reason why well the bc wildlife federation gets such a um, has such a political pull is because um a portion not a very big portion of their um hunting permits um goes to conservation and stuff and whatnot um but yeah and it's and it's such a and that's the thing is there's such a large amount of people who are just going out and doing low impact recreation and yet when it comes to um issues issues in the forest and you know um like consultations their voice are their voices are weighed less than those like big lobby groups yeah yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a serious problem that uh, that I think needs to be addressed moving forward. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say that's true of everything, though. I mean, yeah. if an economist in Toronto has the solution to the logging issue in northeastern BC, do you want to hear it or do you want to be proud of the fact that mm. you don't listen to anybody? Like it's I don't know. Yeah, it's very yeah. egocentric. Um, mm-hmm. But and so just to jump back to the the. Um the MLAs that are running around and uh, blaming the current government, the NDP government on, uh, on shutting down the back country. Um, like it's, it's really sad that that's, that this has turned um, so petty between the NDP and the liberal governments because they're pulling in real people's fears of their livelihood yep. for political gain. And realistically, if the liberal government had done anything on caribou, <laughs> literally anything we wouldn't have been in the situation we are in today the ndp government is doing this because they were forced into a corner too when Catherine mckenna made the imminent threat announcement that's the first step to signal that an emergency order is sort of on the way and an emergency order can protect all critical habitat throughout bc which would which would have far more devastating impacts than than protecting what they've proposed in the partnership agreement. So the NDP government was forced into this position um, by the federal government. And I honestly think had the liberal government, provincial government in BC still been um, in power right now, there already would have been an emergency order. That's what I think, because they weren't willing to do anything. It was clear. And I think the federal government would have just given up on them mm-hmm. and issued the emergency order. And the only thing that the liberal government do did was uh, ask forestry companies. They'd ask them to voluntarily reduce their impact in critical habitat. And uh, none of the forest companies volunteered, as you might imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things I, I, I really want to talk about, two more points of this, but mm-hmm. one of the ones that we haven't touched on a lot, and it's something that Wilderness Committee worked hard on, um, and I know a couple of individuals did as well. Uh, and actually, this is an article with quotes from you in it. Um, mm. That this is Narwhal, May 14, 2019. Uh, BC approves 314 new cut blocks in endangered caribou habitat over the last five months. Yes. So when we talk about industry being the problem, mm-hmm. it's difficult why people don't see this as a problem. <laughs> like, I know. It's yes, we want the economy to do well. No mm-hmm. one's saying we don't want the economy to do well. Mm-hmm. But the reality is they were approving companies to come in, add new roads, which we know is one of two parts of the problem, mm-hmm. as well as cut down new swatches of forest, which is yeah. the second part of that problem, while negotiating the plans mm-hmm. to protect endangered species in that habitat. Yeah. And I personally, it just makes me bleed out my ears a little bit. Um, 
like yeah. I, I I can't formulate a question for you because <laughs> it just it's so I I don't it's it's it, it borders on evil like genius yeah yeah it really really does and yeah. how, how do we how do we deal with that Whew. If you well, could just fix I, it for us, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think calling them out is the first thing. I mean, so our mapper, Jeff, who works at the Wilderness Committee, um, we worked together and we were the ones who figured out that 314 number. And so, yeah, that was in the that was in five months during negotiations with First Nations. And like you said, making your ears bleed, that's it pained me to realize this because that means that while they were, you know, negotiating in good faith, supposedly with the Westmo, Westmo really and Soto First Nations, they were also rapidly approving cup locks in the critical habitat of Southern Mount Caribou. And this is also um, what makes me so angry when, when industry plays the, um, the victim card is, is they knew that this was coming and they, they got so many, they had 314 cup locks approved in five months. So it's like there was like a gold rush to get these cup locks um, approved because of course, once they're approved, um, the plan can't protect them from being cut. So yeah, I mean, to, to call out the NDP government for negotiating in what I think is bad faith while they're approving um, cup blocks, you know, by night, but, but talking about protecting them by day, that's, that's negotiating in bad faith. And I think calling them out is, is part of that. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that a change is coming to how we do, do business here. And I think there's such a difference between jobs. Okay. So there's a difference between creating jobs and then, and then there's also a difference between like, there's different forms of economy, like economy in the number of jobs versus economy in profits to shareholders yeah, because like, yeah, our economy and profits to shareholders in BC has been doing great. You know, more companies are getting richer, but our economy in terms of the number of jobs is doing poor. We're laying off people left, right and center because of automation, because of um, raw log exports, like because of a number of things. So it's not as simple as just economy. I think, I think we have to look at like, how industry is working for us. And if they're not, then they can leave and we can create for like community-based forest um, operations that do work for us. It's interesting because if you were to take the approach to planning, to resource allotment and all of that, that you see in these rural regions and apply it to an urban center, there would be riots in the street yeah. because it would be taking the little bit of green space we have and saying, ah, well, someone can make some money on it and you might get a job out of it. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it, if you try and think of it that yeah. way, it's, yeah, yeah, no, that's not okay. Well, it's, it's, it's the mindset of like, oh, what is it? It's a, such an old saying. It's like, make, make hay while the sun shines. Oh, we're Googling that. We're, <laughs> what going, is that? we're going on adventure podcast audience. There is one. Make hay, oh, sun shines. Or something. To make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> literally so there's two definitions there's the literal to make yeah. hay during favorable weather right and idiomatic which is to act while an opportunity exists semicolon, yes. to take action yes. while the situation is favorable yes exactly so it's like that mindset well the forest is here so we might as well log it it's it, yeah. and it's just like and then we'll deal with the repercussions later um it's it's that mindset is how industry has operated and that's why 
they've run into a situation where they have no forest left to log because they've done it this way. They've, I mean, they knew this was coming. Um, and yeah. And now, now a lot of these companies are, um, like they're, they're opening up mills in the States now because they've liquidated all of BC's forests. Yep. And it's not, it's, it's technically a renewable resource, but the rate mm -hmm. at which it's being taken is not yeah. sustainable. No, it's not. And, and they do, there's little caring into where they harvest from. Um, like I, I've been speaking with someone who works in industry. Um, they're a professional biologist and they told me that they go into a forest to approve it to be cut and they're, they don't even feel qualified because they're not an ecologist. They don't know what species are there, if species are at risk, um, what to look for in terms of nesting habitat. Like it's, it's just this big loophole in the system of, um, of how we're, how we're logging our backcountry and where we're doing it and just a lack of care and a lack of planning. And that's, why we're losing jobs that's why we're losing caribou yeah. yeah absolutely i actually read and i'll I'll try and find this and link it um a summary of a an article that was written by two political scientists one liberal one conservative that took a look at the way we're going just in general regarding resource use and saying that it worked in the 80s but mm. there's a reason we started moving away from it and why other nations are investing more and more money in innovation, in technology, in all of this, whereas Canada is almost doubling down, which is an expression I don't like because it's not accurate. It's mm. a it's a it's, it's a gambling term that means something entirely different than how it's used. But anyway, mm. doubling down um, with a caveat on resource extraction. Like yeah. I say, like we know it's limited, we know it's harmful, and mm -hmm. we know there's other ways to make money that are better and more sustainable. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we're insisting on staying on this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I yeah. feel, yeah, I feel the same thing. I think people think of Canada and they're like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, it's, um, one of the best countries in, ter in terms of like wilderness. We still have a lot of our wildlife left, but the way we're going, I don't know if that's going to be true anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And it's, it's such a huge, as you said, I mean, when we started talking, it's just, it's a wildly large issue that mm -hmm. politically is being used with a very small focus. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the economy on one side. It's wolves on the other. Yeah. Um, and that's wrong. It's yes. Just, that's such a wrong. Yeah. And something else that's come as a result of this, and we're going to be very gentle in talking about it, um, is the racism that came out. Yeah. Uh, this was, and again, I think to the general public, it might have been shocking. But to those of us who are used to these conversations, it's like, no, that's about right. Hmm. Um, yeah. And that, and I mean, the extraordinarily, extraordinarily underscored simplistic version is that a lot of folks online are commenting and they are pointing to First Nations peoples um, mm. as the bad guy. And yeah. it's bringing out a lot of what I imagine is mm -hmm. pre-existing racism publicly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's concerning to see. Yeah. It's so it's well, it's concerning to see, but it's concerning that there's been little like the provincial government hasn't come out in opposition to this, to this language and to say, look, like we're not going to be talking to you if we're going to be if, if we're going to be in a room full of people making racist comments like someone needs to stand up against this at those town halls when racist comments are made. That needs to be shut down right away. 
that's it's not acceptable at all and to think of it it's just it's so disheartening and sad when I think of Chief Ken Cameron and Chief Roland Wilson who have given their everything to save caribou they voluntarily started the maternity pen project Mm -hmm. and increase the number of caribou. I think it's from 19 to 70 caribou. They did this all on their own. They have people out there 24 seven every day of the year watching the caribou. Like imagine that job. And so they've put, they've put so much effort into this and and their own resources into this and to, to see community members treat them like this for their initiative to protect and save a iconic provincial species it's they should be like we should all be giving them a round of applause mm-hmm. and thanking them yeah and, and it's just it's so sad yeah i'm reading the interview uh it's one of the ones i looked at earlier and i'm looking at again now with chief roland wilson from mm-hmm. west moberly uh am i saying that one right yeah that's right okay and he uh it's i it's I mean, he, A, I think he's a masterful politician um, mm-hmm. just based on his responses to some questions. But he's saying, like, yeah, we want to work with the industry. We want to work with backcountry users. Mm-hmm. Like, we want a plan that's going to work for everyone. Yeah. Um, and you see, and again, they're in this article, which I'll link, there are some comments to him that he's repeated. And it's it's disgusting, first of all. But then mm-hmm. when you consider, I mean, just from that personal empathetic level, but okay. when you consider the actual context of what they're talking about, Mm-hmm. Um, it makes you question who these other people even are. Yeah. Why, like if, if this is all they can do is talk about, if they, if all they can do is say racist things, it's very unsettling. Uh, yeah. and as you said, I mean, at this point, the government, as much as I'm not a fan of the concept of a nanny state needs to hand out some spankings. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, this well, isn't at least okay. Shut it down. And like, cause I feel like what they did was just give them more of a voice. Like when they extended the consultations, I get it. Sure. If communities are upset and they want to be consulted more, extend the consultation. But a lot of the reason they extended this was for those communities who were, who, you know, the, who were yelling racist slurs at the town halls and um, like, online and on Facebook, um, harassing the First Nations. Like, sure, extend the public consultations, but denounce the racism, say that it needs to stop. Um, that That's something that I thought should have happened long ago. And especially uh, West Fraser, the logging company, their role in this, they're the ones who, they're the, they're basically the company who ignited this fear in, all, in the communities for saying that 500 jobs statement. Um, and they whether intentionally or not, the, it it sparked the fear that led to this situation become becoming so racist. And they need to denounce it also. Like it's they have to own up for their role in creating this awful um, like landscape by, that's been created over caribou. Mm-hmm. Like one of the comments I'm reading here on Facebook, this isn't so much a racist one, but this says, how do you spell corruption? And then it says caribou. Yes. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> oh my God. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't yeah. even make sense sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, And I think part of it is people are angry and they're afraid and yeah. they're lashing out in the only way they have been taught. Right. Um, and so, I mean, you have to have a, a, a it's, it's a difficult situation in which to try and have empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at the very least, try and understand where they're at so it has some context. Yeah. Uh, and I agree. I think the government needs to take ownership of some of this. Yeah. They've created an acrimonious situation. Yes. 
Yes, um, they have. And they walked into the public consultations with their head down and really nervous and said, you know, like this is we we don't want to do this, but we have to do this. We're being forced to do this. Like they started out so apologetic that the community saw this and were like, okay, well, this is easy to push you on this because you're you're like you look like you're about to fold. Um, and so they 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 should have been honest. They should have walked in the into these towns and said, look, we're going to lose caribou. This is what we need to do um, because of past management. This is where we're at. Like they they needed to walk in with some sort of spine because they they walked in just super apologetically and frankly they walked in as if they were terrified and of course it's resulted in this um so yeah i i think there's a level of like of understanding and and consultation in terms of like okay if this mill closes what are we going to do um what what do we do in that situation? How do we ensure the town stays alive and thrives? How can we support your town that way? What are some new initiatives we can think of? That's all good, but um, that's not. I don't know. They've they they've just they haven't denounced a lot of the misinformation. Like yes. I get I get people who call and say that hiking's going to be off limits and that you can no longer go camping. Yeah. That's wrong. Even even snowmobiling and ATVing. Um, in the backcountry, in this plan as it is, nothing's restricted. That's coming because it has a huge role to play, and that will likely come. But what's going to happen is if they do shut down some of the backcountry to snowmobiling and ATVing, they're going to open up areas in a place that doesn't have caribou, right? Mm -hmm. So it's and it like they're willing. That's the thing about the the Chief Ken Cameron and Roland Wilson, is they want to work with these communities to find a compromise like if the snowmobiling club is feeling like a lot of their area is off limits now they're going to work with them and be like okay well what about this area over here you know yeah. no caribou and this looks a little bit better so why can't we do that like when we just give in to all the fear and misinformation and when we don't like all of this information is online it's all in the plan and it's so clearly in the plan that if these people just if they just read it so many of their fears would be laid to rest one of the things, and I was going to, I wanted to bring this up again, was um, the area that I was thinking about is Bighorn Backcountry um, mm, yeah. in Alberta. Yeah. And that argument was happening almost concurrently to a lot right. of this. Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting is there's a very similar crossover. So you talking mm -hmm. about the the uh, backcountry, uh, like ATV or snowmobile users, mm -hmm. the exact same thing came up in that argument. They're saying, well, now we're not going to be allowed to do this. That's like, yeah. well, maybe you won't be able to do it right here. Yeah. But you just have to like drive five minutes further down the road yeah. to get there. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 I wonder I, how much of it's a generational thing too, because I read about history from the, the great wars we've been in. And I say great in terms of volume, not in terms of how good they were. Um, mm. But the great war, World War II, uh, in the US, you're looking at Korea, Vietnam, et cetera. And the amount of sacrifice the public was asked to make. Mm hmm. Right. Like you were like, I, I think I feel like we have gotten pa too far away from a time when you were given a ration of sugar. Mm, yeah. Right. Like that was a reality for a yeah. time. And yeah. if you wanted to make a wedding dress, you had to find silk somewhere else mm -hmm. because it was being used for uh, military purposes. Right. Exactly. And I feel like exactly. maybe if we had that closer to our life where we all have to give something up yeah. because it's yeah. for the benefit of everyone. 
Um, well, exactly. And that's that's just the thing. I attended a wildlife seminar uh, with the provincial government and different stakeholders. So it was about how basically wild ungulate populations in BC are declining. And so, you know, you have your hunters there, you have forestry, you have oil and gas, you have um, gri like the grizzly bear viewing operations. And everyone was passing blame to the next person. Like, you know, the hunters are like, well, um, forestry cut, has cut down our area. Like there's, there's no food for ungulates. And then forestry is passing the blame to, okay, yeah, well we can do all this, but if oil and gas continues to do, operate this way, then there's no, and it's just like, I actually, I stood up and I was like, okay, so we're all like, nothing is going to be solved here. If this is how, if, if we just keep going in circles and passing the blame, like not, nothing's, we're going to be here in 20 years and we're going to have nothing to talk about because ungulate populations are going to be gone. And I said, but we need to be willing to sacrifice something. Every single group here needs to be willing to sacrifice something like the snowmobiling um, group was there and she was concerned about how her members are going to be impacted. But I mean, if your hobby is leading to the extinction of an animal, <laughs> then like yeah. maybe it's time you rethink how your hobby can can operate within um within a landscape where caribou can survive mm -hmm. like those are such easy check check boxes for me like you know just move out of ha caribou habitat done heli skiing operations move them out of caribou habitat done like it's just i guess you it, have to be willing to give up something like i don't know yeah the but, big but thing is none it, of them are it's asking the question how can i do better and if every yeah. single person just did that little thing and tried 2%, mm -hmm. what a difference that would make. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. speaking of which, let's talk next steps uh, mm -hmm. to wrap up. So mm -hmm. the most recent news I have is yeah. uh, McKenna, uh, Environment Minister McKenna, threatening the, the government again, yeah. um, more or less saying, like, you're not getting it done and you need to get it done. Yeah. Um, since then, though, has anything happened? Are we seeing progress or are things stalling out? Uh, and following that, how do we as advocates, as supporters of wildlife and the environment help mm -hmm. move it forward in that most positive, positive way? Yeah. Um, okay. So there's a public consultation that's going on until uh, the 31st of this month. Uh, so May 31st. And again, like this is the most comprehensive and precedent-setting plan to protect and recover, recover caribou that we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So we're really encouraging people to fill out the survey that the BC government has made. We made it really easy. You can log on to our website. Um, if you type into Google Wilderness Committee Hope for Caribou, you'll find the survey there. It's pretty long, but we give you um, pointers if you don't want to read the 43-page document yeah. that the BC government has linked. Uh, we basically summarize the different plans and say like what's good and what's bad, and you can put things into your own words. But if you fill out that survey, that would go such such a long way um, because that's how the BC government is um, – you know, that's what they're considering as they move forward with the final version of this plan. Um, at first, to answer the question about how it's going and if, you know, if we think the government's going to uh, waver on it, at first we were scared they were going to walk away, BC, altogether, because the backlash was so strong. Um, but now things have changed as misinformation has kind of um, been resolved. Um, 
we're seeing the story change and we're seeing more people start to come around to the to the idea of it and more local uh, mayors and whatnot that are coming around to it as well. So that is good. Um, I think if the BC government were to walk away completely, then Canada would issue an emergency order. So that's just not smart for anyone. That's not smart for the for the provincial government to make. So I think we will see a plan as a result of this, but it's what we need to do is make sure that it's the strongest plan we can. And we can do that by by writing in to the to the consultation because the BC government needs to see support for the plan. That is that's 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 just what it is. They need to see support for it um, to, to match the opposition that they felt for it. Perfect. Um, yeah. And other than that, because our this is going to come. I'm going to put this up a little early so we get two extra days mm-hmm. um, awesome. of sending people there. But once that has passed, uh, mm-hmm. because that'll be uh, literally it'll be two days after this goes online. Uh, what would be the next step? Uh, I know Wilderness Committee, you regularly have actions on your website. I'm actually filling out the survey right now. Um, so if there's typing sounds, that's what it is. Putting in my information. <laughs> Great. Uh, I use, I've never seen it done this way, but I use the same survey. So I want to talk about you, with you about that offline afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, oh no, I just deleted something I wrote. It's oh, okay. No. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it, that might've been the sentence that made the BC government <laughs> commit to the plan. What the, oh my God. You are a terrible human being and I love yeah. it. Um, <laughs> so once, once this section has been done, is yeah. it, does it become a talk to your MLA, talk to your MP like yeah. make this a priority situation. Yeah. yeah, because so the thing is, yes, the consultation is done, but I mean, they still need to see our support. And I think it's still very valuable to to talk to your MLAs um, about about Caribou and say that you support this plan because they're going to be obviously coming up with it. And so they need to know that the public's still on side and that this is an issue, that this is a voting issue as well. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, like meetings with MLAs, um, you can also sign up for our action alert list, which as this uh, story keeps going, we will be sending out um, emails about different opportunities and how you can take action to support the Caribou plan. So definitely sign up for our action alerts on our website. To learn more about Wilderness Committee or take action on the Caribou or other issues, visit wildernesscommittee.org or look them up on social media. I want to send a big thanks to Charlotte, who's always a wonderful, compassionate, intelligent guest, and all of you for taking action to protect Caribou. Of course, I also want to thank you for listening. As much as I love doing this show, it only continues because of you. Your ratings and reviews on the show, on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen, makes it possible for others to discover Defender Radio. Your clicks on social media profiles and comments about how adorable JJ is melt my heart. And your feedback gives me direction to keep growing in new and exciting ways. Thank you. Remember, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and on Instagram at Howie Michael. Patreon supporters who give as little as 25 cents per episode get exclusive content like bloopers, videos, and the occasional rant by me. I'll also be updating it to include contests, stickers and pin packages, the new Discord chat, and more. Just hit up patreon.com slash Defender Radio to learn more. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind, stay informed, 
and stay strong.